I, um, my wife and I, several years ago, we were at a golf tournament in Birmingham, Alabama with her parents. It was a senior PGA tournament. And while we were there, a really bad thunderstorm blew up. And the people who had purchased the high dollar tickets got to go into these little shelters that had been constructed all around the golf course. Now the, the riffraff like myself, we didn't get to go into these little shelters so we kind of had to stand out and endure the thunderstorm. And at one point I looked around and realized that I was standing in a thunderstorm holding an umbrella on a golf course next to a tree that was kind of, well, there was nothing else around it there except for some metal bleachers and then a large electrical electrical power cable that was running for something they had set up for the golf course. Not the best place to be. Uh, we very much at that moment needed shelter and we didn't have any. We were exposed uh, to the wrath of the elements. Kind of at their mercy. The last time I was with y'all we talked about the message of the gospel and kind of introduced the gospel and said that the gospel is an old but a powerful message from God. Uh, we said that the gospel is for both believers and for unbelievers and that the gospel is a message about a righteousness from God that's received by faith. Uh, today what we're going to see is that the gospel is a message also about shelter. It's about shelter. And honestly, it's about a shelter that a great many of us don't think that we have any need of. Uh, you can walk up to, to almost anybody and talk to them about the gospel, and they are likely to say something like this, that's great that that works for you, and I'm happy for you, but I don't really need that. I'm, I'm fine. My life is fine the way that it is, and I'm glad that makes a difference in your life, but that really doesn't seem that necessary to me. Uh, that might be you even. You might think at the end of the day, well, that was an interesting message, but I don't really need that. I'm fine without it. The passage we're about to look at today, Paul's going to make the case that we're not fine, that we're not okay, and that we really do need this shelter that the gospel provides. So Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, 
For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relationships with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Would you pray with me, please? Father, help us as we approach Your Word. Help me to handle it carefully and properly. Help us to give attention to it. And please, Father, by Your Spirit, would You impress this truth on our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this section of Romans is about the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Uh, Not a very popular topic. Uh, There are not a lot of reality shows out there. Life under the wrath of God. Uh, it's it's not a party. It's not a topic you bring up at parties a lot. Hey, what do you think about the wrath of God? Oh well, I, you know, it's just not one of those things you like to talk about a lot. Uh, what is the wrath of God? What is that? A couple of definitions for you. It's been defined as the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of His holiness. The holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of His holiness. Or, God's fearsome hatred of all wickedness. God's fearsome hatred of all wickedness. Now, honestly, thinking about a wrathful God grates against a lot of our preconceived notions of what God is like. I mean, what we like to picture is a happy grandfatherly sort of figure that just loves everybody. I mean, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, God was kind of ticked off, we like to think. He was sort of mad about things, but He's cooled off by the New Testament, right? I mean, He's, he's kind of happy now. Uh, after all, the Bible says that God is a God of love. Uh, so, so what's this stuff about wrath? How do we put together a wrathful God with a God who's also loving? It doesn't fit in our minds very well sometimes. But if you think about it, true love doesn't rule out wrath. True love doesn't rule out wrath. Uh, Rebecca Piper wrote this. She said, Love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. If you love a beautiful ocean... You don't just shrug your shoulders and say, oh well, when 300 million gallons of oil begin to soil and pollute that ocean and destroy the life that is in it. If you love someone, you don't remain indifferent when they destroy themselves through the use of drugs or alcohol. You don't just shrug your shoulders and go, oh well, 
you're outraged, and rightfully so. Now, Piper goes on to say, how can a good God forgive bad people without compromising himself? Does he just play fast and loose with the facts? Oh, never mind. Boys will be boys. She says, try telling that to a survivor of the Cambodian killing fields or to someone who lost an entire family in the Holocaust. No, to be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil and implacably hostile to injustice. Think about that. To To really be good, to be truly good, you've got to be outraged by evil. You've got to be hostile to injustice or else you're not truly good. So because God is both holy and good, His wrath is set against what Paul calls here the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth about God. If you look at this chapter and wanted to sum it all up in in one or two sentences, you would say uh, the point Paul is trying to get across is this. God's wrath is present now and people actually deserve it. God's wrath is present now and people deserve it. Here's why. First of all, God makes Himself known to all mankind. God makes Himself known to all mankind. How does He do that? God is a spirit. We can't see Him. He doesn't have a body like we do. How, How does He make Himself known? How do we even know for sure that He's there? Look at verse 20. For His invisible attributes... Namely, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Now, if you're in the more poetic language than the language here in Romans, Psalm 19 puts it this way, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims His handiwork. Uh, the Bible's answer to the question, how can I be sure that God is there, is, is basically open your eyes and look around. Open your eyes and look around. The trees themselves are screaming that God exists, that He is powerful beyond our wildest imaginations, and that He deserves to be worshipped. We can't escape the evidence that God exists because it's all around us. Look at the seasons. Look at the oceans. Look at the way plants and animals are designed. Look at the intricacies of the human body. Look at the complexity of your eyes and the way that they function. Look at the planet itself. If earth were any closer to the sun, we'd all burn up. If it were just a little bit further away, we'd all freeze to death. See, the, the... Fundamental questions that we have to answer about life are these. Why are we here? Where did all of this come from? Why is there something and not nothing? Now the answer given by most of modern science is that we're here by chance. We're just kind of here. That time and chance and matter have produced plants and animals and air and water and people and words and love 
and heartbreak. Everything that's here is here by chance. It's all an accident. That sounds almost ludicrous when you, when you say it like that. Uh, one, one scientist put it like this. Uh, he said that organic life happening by accident is as ridiculous and improbable as the proposition that a tornado blowing through a junkyard would assemble a Boeing 747. It just, it just isn't going to happen. But if there's no God, if instead of a personal God being the foundation of all things, if the impersonal is foundational to all things, if it's primary, then, John Frame put it this way, there is no consciousness, no wisdom, and no will in the ultimate origin of things. It's just, it just kind of happened. He goes on to say, what we call reason and value are the unintended accidental consequences of chance events. So why should we trust reason if it is only the accidental result of irrational happenings? In other words, he's saying, if this is really a random chance universe, then at the end of the day, we have no basis for any real knowledge about anything. How could you ever do a scientific experiment if you weren't sure that you were just going to get a random result that you know telling what would happen every time you did it? You might turn on the lights and an alligator might pop out of them. If this is really a random chance universe. Uh, Frame goes on to say, Moral virtue will in the end be unrewarded. Friendship, love, and beauty are all of no ultimate consequence for they are reducible to blind, uncaring process. Friendship, love, beauty, and what is it? It's just kind of accidental anyway. Uh, David Wilcox many years ago uh, wrote about the silliness of this worldview in his song, The Big Mistake. The Big Mistake. If, if atheistic evolution is true, if there is no God, it's all a mistake. There's no meaning in relationships. There's no meaning in love. There's no meaning in anything. There's no basis for morality in a universe without God. I mean, you, you may want to say even there's no right, there's no wrong. We, we all just kind of make it up as, our, as we go. But if you say that, if I walk up to you and hit you upside the head, or if I steal something from you, or if I kill someone who is dear to you, or if you um, ask me for change for a $100 bill and I give you a quarter, well, it's all relative. There's no right or wrong. Here you go. You're going you're gonna to be upset about that. You're going to say, or at least know at some level, that what I did was wrong. Uh, think back to uh, September 11. That, that's in all of our psyches from now on. Did you think that what the hijackers did that day was wrong? Do you think it was evil? Why do you think that? What gives you the right to legislate morality? It's a phrase that we hear, hear thrown around very often. But see, when you say murder is wrong, 
you're making a moral judgment. And in an evolutionary worldview, there are no moral judgments. There is no right and wrong. There's only the survival of the fittest. I mean, think about it. In all of nature, who survives? The strongest, most violent animals survive. Why isn't that legitimate for people too? Why isn't it okay for the strongest, most violent people to survive? See, if, if God doesn't exist, then you and I have no basis for saying that the events of 9-11 were wrong. We have no basis for saying that anything is wrong because what is wrong? What's bad? What's good? You say it's bad to kill somebody? Well, why? If we're all just lucky mud anyway, what difference does it make? Maybe it's really good. Maybe you're really helping everybody out. Uh, John Paul Sartre put it this way, if God does not exist, there is no longer any possibility of an a priori good existing. It is nowhere written that one must be honest or must not lie since we are now on the plane where there are only human beings. Dorshevsky once wrote, if God did not exist, everything would be permitted. If God did not exist, everything, think about that, everything would be permitted. Again, if God does not exist, you have no basis for saying murder or violence or terrorism or wrong. But, if you're sure that those things are wrong, then whether you want to admit it or not, you are recognizing that there is a moral fabric to the universe. That certain things are right and that certain things are wrong. And that moral fabric that you know is there is pointing you to a moral lawgiver. That moral law is pointing you to a moral lawgiver. It's pointing you to God Himself. Paul is saying here the entire creation points us to God so that we have no excuse for not worshiping Him. You can suppress that truth all you want to, but you can never get away from the truth that God is there and that we are to worship Him. Uh, You see, one of the primary distinctions Paul is making here and that we find throughout the Bible is the difference between God the Creator and man the creature. Now, all through the Bible we see that God the Creator is not dependent on His creation, but that man the creature is totally dependent on God uh, for all things, even the very air that we breathe. Uh, Those of you who have children you know that your children wouldn't exist if it weren't for you. They're dependent on you for food. They're dependent on you for clothing. They're dependent on you for shelter. Uh, They should honor their parents. They should have thankful hearts. How much more with God our Creator should we honor Him and have thankful hearts toward Him? Shouldn't we bow before this great God you made us. But, and here's the second point. Instead of doing this, instead of worshiping God, man says, so what? So what? And this is the second part of Paul's argument. God's existence is plain to everybody, but we all say, so what? 
and refused to worship Him. You see it all through this text. I'll, I'll point a few out to you. Verse 21, They neither glorify Him as God nor give thanks to Him. Verse 23, They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. Verse 25, They exchange the truth of God for a lie and served created things rather than the Creator. Verse 28, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. Verse 18, they suppressed the truth. Paul's painting here a picture of a creation that has rebelled against their Maker. They've said, forget you, God. We don't need you telling us what to do. We can figure this out on our own. We can live life without you in the picture. We're not going to honor you. We're not going to give you thanks. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, we take the sunshine for granted and we're annoyed when we don't get it. We take the sunshine for granted and we're annoyed when we don't get it. God's existence is plain. We say, so what? And the third point here, there are consequences for that. There are consequences for that. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Uh, people reject God and because of this, their thinking becomes futile. They're intellectually confused. They're frustrated. They come up with foolish ideas about our origins. Our hearts become darkened. Our emotions are disordered. We become fools. We reject God. We reject God, but we were made to worship. That's what we are. We're worshiping beings. So something has to come in and fill the void that's left by our rejection of God. So what happens? Verse 23, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. Verse 25, we worship and serve the created things rather than the Creator. And what this means is that we don't worship God, we reject God, and we replace Him with idols. Now, idols aren't just these you know, uh, pieces of wood, carved creations of wood and stone that we bow down before, but they're anything that we substitute for the true God. Uh, they may be false ideas about God, about a God that we create in our own image. Uh, an American sort of God who always looks the other way, always understands who's happy for us to live however we want to live, whose name we're not really sure of, uh, our own little melting pot God who we make up but who's obligated to bless us when we call on Him or her, uh, he's obligated to help us out. Idols can also be things that aren't so obviously religious, uh, but they are things that that exercise very. They are things that exercise powerful control over our lives. They're things that we love, things that we cherish, things that we worship, things that we serve. They're things we can't give up. They're things like money, power. Success, pleasure, performance, acceptance, health, respect, our independence. 
we don't worship God, and so we look in other places for other things that will save us, make us whole, make us complete, give us meaning in a difficult world. And let me say here that even Christians continue to have to root these idols uh, out of their lives. We all have idols. Uh, Richard Keyes put it this way. He said, Sin predisposes us to want to be independent of God so that we can do what we want without bowing to His authority. Rather than look to the Creator and have to deal with His Lordship, we orient our lives toward the creation where we can be more free to control and shape our lives in our desired directions. If we're not looking at God, we can just kind of make life like we want to make it. However, since we were made to relate to God, but do not want to face Him, we forever inflate things in this world to religious proportions to fill the vacuum left by God's exclusion. Uh, Chesterton put it this way. He said that when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing, we worship anything. When we cease to worship God, it's not that we worship nothing at that point. We then begin to worship anything. We don't just eliminate God. We build God's substitutes and put them in His place. We build God's substitutes and then what do we do? We serve them. We serve these idols that we build. They control us, even though a lot of times we don't realize. We think we're being wise, but we're actually being foolish. We think we're going to be free. I'm out from under God, but actually we've become slaves to these idols that we construct. We develop eating disorders because idols of appearance and acceptance enslave us. And we do whatever those gods tell us to do. We become workaholics because our idol is our need to feel productive and useful. We crave approval. We use drugs or alcohol or illicit sex to find freedom from pressure and stress. And instead we find slavery. We become perfectionist and we get outraged when things don't when things don't go the way we want them to go because our idol is control. I've got to be in control. Things have got to work out right. Think of uh, the billionaire Howard Hughes many years ago who became terrified that he was going to come into contact with germs and he became just this whacked out recluse. His idol was his health and it controlled his entire life. Or think back to the Lord of the Rings and Frodo who doesn't want to put down the ring. Why doesn't he want to put down the ring? Because the ring offers him power. And it becomes his idol and it begins to control him. See, all of us, whether we realize it or not, continue to have idols that exercise influence over us in powerful ways and sometimes in very subtle ways. Now, where does the wrath of God fit in to all of this. Uh, we can see that it's it's certainly deserved, but when's it coming? When's the wrath of God coming? Uh, there's one sense in which it's still future. In chapter 2, verse 5, it speaks of the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. But in another sense, God's wrath is being revealed right now. 
How's it revealed right now? It's revealed in God's giving us exactly what we want. It's revealed in God's giving us exactly what we want. Uh, it's a phrase that occurs three times in this section. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them over. Verse 26, Because of this, God gave them over. Verse 28, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. See, we, we scream at God, Shut up and leave me alone. Let me do what I want to do. And God says, Okay, I'll give you what you want. I'll give you what you want. You want to find out what life is like without me? Go for it. You know, we're like dogs straining at the leash and God said, okay, go. Here's what life is like when you remove me from it. And we say, man, yeah. I finally get to do what I want to do. We think we finally got freedom and fun and life and instead we find slavery and misery and death because of who God is again there is a moral fabric to the universe and when we go against that moral fabric our sin our rebellion against God necessarily produces misery See, oftentimes God judges us by simply giving us over to our own desires. And the rest of this chapter basically shows us what depravity is like. Uh, one guy said it's like God is lifting uh, the lid off of hell and giving us a peek. Someone was telling me recently the movie The Book of Eli is kind of a picture of this. What's life like? without God. Uh, we see in here that sexual relationships that were designed for our good degenerate into immorality and even homosexual relationships, which Paul calls here not only immoral, but unnatural. There's no getting around the fact that the Bible says that homosexuality is wrong. But notice here that our depravity is not limited to sexual sin. We see in this list that sin pervades every part of our lives like a cancer. Uh, by the end of the list, Paul says that we are so messed up that not only do we do things uh, that we know we deserve to be punished for, not only do we do these things, but we give approval when others do the same sort of things. Uh, I remember... When I was growing up, living in a small town, we had nothing to do but drive around the Walmart parking lot on Friday and Saturday nights and listen to the radio. And I remember there was this song that people, by driving and crying, that people used to sing along to, I'm going straight to hell just like my mama said. And we've all sung along to things maybe we wish we hadn't or weren't really thinking about it. But, you know, you just think about that. There's kind of this joyful delight. I'm going straight to hell just like my mama said people delighting in their depravity enjoying their depravity they claim to be wise God's out of my life but the reality is they're becoming fools uh, life is in many ways tragic 
Because we wanted God out of our lives and God said, okay, I'll give you exactly what you wanted. He gives us the punishment we deserve by giving us exactly what we want. Back to our 9-11 hijackers. Were they murderers? Sure. But please understand that they didn't do anything that you and I aren't capable of doing if left to our own desires. Were they evil men? Yes. Do they deserve death and hell even? Yes, absolutely. But so does everyone who worships and serves created things instead of worshiping and serving the Creator. So does everyone who lies. So does everyone who gossips. So does everyone who disobeys their parents. We all deserve to die. And that's why we need shelter. That's why we need the gospel. That's why we need the gospel. Who can save us from the wrath of God? How can we fix this? How can we go against our desires? Who can save us from ourselves? Only God Himself. The gospel, Paul says, is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. See, God may have abandoned us to our sin, but he, or He may have given us over to our sin, but He has not abandoned us. He may have given us over to our sin, but He has not abandon us. If he wanted to abandon us, he wouldn't have sent his son to rescue us. Uh, the gospel is this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or as we saw earlier in Romans, in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness, a right standing with God. That is by faith. See, the gospel, this message about what Jesus has done on the cross, is our only hope for shelter from the wrath of God. And if you believe the gospel, God's wrath has been turned away from you because it has instead been poured out on His Son. If you don't believe the gospel, you are very much still living under the wrath of God and you have no shelter. Jesus invites you to come to Him and to believe on Him and to find shelter from God's wrath. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank You.